my employees, multiple of my employees have cried on the job after having a job seeker on the phone with them telling them, you've changed my life. I can't tell you how thankful I am. So there's just something very special about the opportunity to have dozens of people who have had pain and struggle help other people solve that pain and struggle. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. Today's guest is Harley Blakeman. Harley is the founder and CEO of Honest Jobs, an employment marketplace that's dedicated to helping people with criminal records find employment by connecting them with fair chance employers. Harley, who was incarcerated himself for drug-related crimes that he regrets, has turned his life around through education and entrepreneurship. He is now working hard to change one of our most significant societal problems. So, after word from our sponsor, my interview with Harley Blakeman and Honest Jobs. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Harley, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, absolutely. My name is Harley Blakeman. Currently, I'm the founder and CEO of a company called Honest Jobs. Uh, we help people with criminal histories find better employment faster, and we do that nationwide. I'm also author of a book called Grit, How to Get a Job and Build a Career with a Criminal Record. The book's done fairly well. It's self-published, but it's sold about 6,000 copies, and Uh, I'm just a big advocate for some criminal justice reform. There's a lot of room for improvement, and uh, I love getting involved. So I've talked with, you know, senators and house reps and things, but it's not really my focus, but I love doing it. As far as my bio, I had a rough childhood. I was a homeless teen for a couple of years. I went to prison when I was 19. I had about four or five years of reinventing myself. I went to community college, then Ohio State, got a business degree, and basically fell in love with helping other people overcome their criminal histories and find sustainable careers, mostly through pain of trying to do it myself and seeing how hard it was. I wanted to, f- to solve that problem. So I've lived in Columbus, Ohio for about 10 years. I'm living in Denver, Colorado right now, and I'm just growing our company really fast and helping a lot of people and love talking about ways to continue doing that, both from a business perspective, but also from a uh, political perspective as well. Anyone who's taken a look at it knows that our country has a problem with the criminal justice system, that there are way too many people in prison, both in the states and nationally, the states are where a lot of the problem is, and that furthermore, once you get out of prison, you are often relegated to a second-class citizenship at best. I don't think that's what we want out of out of our country. And so I'm always interested in people 
both who have turned their lives around and who are trying to attack a big problem in the United States. And so, you know, it's not that common that I talk to someone who spent time in prison, but I've talked to people like Christian Picciolini, you might know, who was a skinhead racist sort of person as a young man and turned that around and started something called Life After Hate. And I've talked to uh, Deanna Hoskins, who runs Just Leadership USA, who spent time in the prison system and came out and worked to make it a lot better at, at some of the highest levels of, of government. And I've talked to Ryan Hampton, who was an addict, a drug addict who really took his life way low before he wrote some books and, uh, and works hard on something called the Recovery Advocacy Project. And so, you know, I'm always honored to have time with someone like you who seems to have followed a similar journey. You said you were a homeless teen, that you got into the dealing drugs as a first business, I guess. Can you tell me about like how you fell into that and what it was like doing it? Absolutely. Yeah. My understanding of it has evolved as I've gotten older um, and kind of been able to self-reflect a lot. So first off, I was a very small family. My mom and dad were kind of the black sheep of their families. So like we didn't have much family other than my mom and my dad. We lived very far from both of their families, very little communication. So like other than like maybe Christmas every two or three years, we never saw anyone other than my mom, dad, and my brother. So very small family. We, uh, grew up in a, you know, a trailer living in Florida, in North Central Florida. There you can rent a trailer for $400 a month. Very cheap neighborhood. That being said, it, was, it wasn't uh, a bad place to live in the sense that very little crime, no gang violence. There wasn't gunshots going off in my neighborhood. It was more so uh, a neighborhood with very little opportunity. I mean, very few students went to college. The ones that didn't go to college ended up scrapping metal and getting addicted to drugs. There was a lot of theft and a lot of drug drugs. A lot of alcoholics, a lot of drug addicts. So uh, lived in this town. Life was still pretty good, though. My dad stayed on top of me for grades and things like that, staying in school. However, my mother, right around the time I was 14, lost like 80 pounds after 19 years of marriage to my father. She just divorced my father after she lost a bunch of weight. She was going through alcoholism herself. She had started drinking heavily. She left my dad. Then she got into drugs really bad. And the truth is, is that she got pregnant when she was 15 years old and kind of never had a childhood. That's how I justify it now looking back. And she basically abandoned me and my older brother. And uh, about a year and a half after that, my father passed away in a motorcycle accident. So completely unexpected. Truth is, my mom never knew how to take care of us. She always had my dad. My dad always took care of everything. And she did not know what to do when my dad passed because she didn't have her own place, didn't have her own car. She was on drugs and alcohol, was working as a bartender. And it was just, as you can imagine, wasn't good. However, she was still my mom. And the state didn't think like, oh, this guy doesn't have a parent now. They were like, oh, his mom, you know. So I just slipped through the cracks. And like, I went to stay with my mom for like one or two nights. And I was like sleeping on a couch at someone other guy's house. And there was like beer bottles everywhere. There's no food in the fridge. And at 15, I just decided, you know what? Like I have friends that will let me stay with them. I'm not going to do this. So I wasn't homeless in the sense of like sleeping under a bridge, but I was homeless in the sense of every two or three weeks, I moved to a different house because I outstayed my welcome. You know, no parents signed up to take me in as a child of theirs. So um, it's very hard on a 16-year-old kid to know that like, 
every once in a while I got to move again because this isn't my family. Like I don't have a home, like, you know, they want to help me, but I can also tell by the way they talk that they're not super excited to have me here. So all that was like really hard, um, literally moving from place to place and like didn't have a place to wash laundry, didn't have a consistent ride to school. So at 16, I dropped out of high school. I just stopped going because I was going, but I was struggling with my grades. and I didn't have my dad there to like kind of keep me motivated. I didn't have clean laundry a lot of times. I didn't have rides to school. So anyways, after dropping out of high school, I was just going through a lot of pain and uh, started to abuse prescription pills. Xanax, honestly, was like the first thing I went to because anxiety and depression, that's a slippery slope. Xanax is really bad. <laughs> did you get that prescribed for you or did no, you not no. just found it on the street? No. More so we're talking, we're talking 2008, 2007, 2008. This is kind of like the height of the Florida being like the floodgates of where all these prescription pills are coming from pill mills. People were coming from other states like crazy to people. Like in my hometown, I knew like a half dozen people who would have vans of people come to their house to pick up a prescription. Eight different families go to one doctor and the doctor would write prescriptions, Xanax, Oxycontin, Valiums to all eight of the families. Then they would drive back to their respective states. So, you know, I am kind of a result, not just me, but a lot of people in my hometown are a result of a massive failure. Whoever the correct person to blame is, I don't know, but there should have been way more regulation in place. I think everyone knows that now, but, uh, I got severely addicted to Xanax and then Oxycontin. I started with Percocets and like Vicodin, lower level stuff. But by the time I was halfway through 16, closer to 17, I was doing two, three Oxycontin every day, Xanax every day. I was very addicted. And uh, I always say, like, I, I don't really think of myself as a criminal. I just, I was depressed. I felt like no one cared if I lived or died or if I went to prison and I had nothing. So I just self-medicated and made some poor decisions. I assume if you're addicted and you don't take them, you feel like shit. Yeah. So, you know, from my personal experience, I've met people who have much more severe reactions, but I was very uncomfortable and very nervous and on edge. Couldn't really think about anything else, but I know other people that would like have sweats and shakes and, you know, I, defecate themselves and all types of things whenever they didn't have it. Like, so it can get really bad. I never got quite to that bad, but uh, it clouded my judgment 100% and like made me not capable of doing other important things. So how did you get into the business of selling then? Yeah. So really like most people who sell pot, um, typically most people who sell pot don't sell pot to make money. They sell pot to have free pot right? You, you know, you, you buy an ounce, you sell half of it, you got the other half for free or whatever. Uh, so I was using typically, you know, that's why you don't get high in your own supplies. If you're trying to make money, you don't do it. <laughs> uh, for me, I was doing them. So it started by just like getting enough money to pay for the drugs that I needed. My older brother was also using drugs at the time. And I met a couple people, you know, I was only 16, but my older brother was 20, 21. And he was actually an LPN working at a nursing home. And he knew a couple RNs and a registered nurse was the first person to front me, you know, 40 Oxycontin, 50 Oxycontin and say, you know, sell some of these and you can have a few and just bring me back the money. And that escalated over a period of a year to her saying, I know some Haitians in Miami that can get us trash bag fulls of Oxycontin out of the back door at the manufacturing plant. 
and I can give you hundreds of them if you just pay me back after you sell them. And that's what eventually led to me, you know, taking it across state lines and actually making money. It was really just I had one or two parental type figures in my life and apparent and you know, they happened to be drug dealers and I, you know, they were 10, 15 years older than me and had their own cars and houses and she even had kids and for as terrible it was, they were the people that I had giving me guidance. <laughs> I mean, when I started a company and it started to get going a little bit, it wasn't in the same trade, but there was a really positive feedback loop between doing well at it. You start to prosper a little bit financially. You start to want to grow the business. Did you have that same sort of feeling or was the risk also pretty present in your mind? No, it's really weird as now as an adult, I consider everything like I mean, before I, the way I present my financial reports to my investors, the way I drink when I'm downtown going out with some friends for drinks, like I'm always thinking about the legal ramifications of a mistake, you know, because I'm aware it doesn't have to be intentional. It could just be a mistake, an unintentional mistake, and I could be back in prison. So when I was younger, though, I was, you know, on drugs. And I also just don't recall ever really thinking about it much. I don't think I was dumb. Like, I think I knew it was illegal. I just don't think it was something I thought about very often at all. Like, I just focused on making it out in my mind. I'm just like, well, I'm just going to make a ton of money and one day I'll have a beautiful life. I wasn't even close to that. I think I went about six months of making good money. And, you know, I, I was making pretty good money for a 17-year-old, you know, a couple thousand dollars a week. At 17 years old, it was pretty good for me. Better than the three months I worked in the Friars at Sonic. So. Yeah, way better, um, unfortunately. I assume there came a day when, when they got you. Can you describe that day? I was driving from Florida. It was actually first thing in the morning, the day after I drove up. So I, sometimes I would drive to Florida and I'd stay a day or two in Florida. And then I'd come back and stay a day or two in Georgia. So it was... The day after I had come to Georgia, so it was like six in the morning, someone knocks on my door. You came with a, a, a new supply. Yeah. So I had, a I, I don't remember the exact amounts. I have paperwork somewhere. It was like five and a half, 550 to 700 prescription pills, somewhere in there. And uh, it was a slew of different stuff too. It was mostly Oxycontin and Xanax, but there was some Somas and Valiums and a bunch of other pills. Uh, it was a lot of different stuff. So... I'm asleep in this apartment with my old drug dealing buddy, but he was like my best friend at the time. We used to skateboard together and we hung out, but we sold drugs together too. So uh, I won't say his name, but he's he lived in Georgia. And um, six in the morning, someone knocks on our door. I answer it. It's a kid's mom, this kid we used to skateboard with. It's his mom. So I had met her a couple times before. This kid was like 16. His mom's knocking on my door at six in the morning and she's like, you're not going to believe this. My son got arrested this morning. The police came to our house with a search warrant and arrested him for selling weed. He sold weed to an undercover cop. And I'm like, okay, And what, do, what does this have to do with me? And she's like, I heard on their radio, they kept saying your name. So I, have they not talked to you yet? And I'm like, no. And she's like, you need to get out of here. Like, I think they're going to come arrest you. And I'm like, all right. I was like, uh, okay. Uh, well, all right, thank you. And I shut the door and I woke my roommate up and I was like, Hey dude, we got to get out of here. I don't know what's going on, but I think police are on the way. So like 
first thing in the morning, we're like cramming stuff in bags, trying to find everything in the house, like just, you know, a pipe, a scale, whatever, throw it all in bags. We each get in our cars to leave the apartment complex. And when we leave the apartment complex, I realized this woman is behind me. She like got behind me. And so I turn a corner and she turns with me and she's on her phone. And I turn again and she turns again. She's following me. And I start freaking out. So I just floor it. And she floors it. She's like chasing me through this neighborhood. And I, I turn back onto the main strip and Abercorn Street in Savannah, Georgia. And I turn on the main strip and I get stuck at a red light. And right at that red light, multiple cop cars just slide around my car. And uh, they at gunpoint pull me out of my car and you know, ask me if they can search it. And I said, no, it's not my car. Um, it was technically still in my mom's name because I got it when I was when I was young. And uh, they went and searched it anyways and pulled everything out. And I just went to sleep in the back of the cop car and then woke up and, at the jail. And I've been pulled over for a traffic violation, but I've never had that feeling of like, they've got me. That's got to be a fairly physical reaction in that moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting is like, uh, yes, there's like the pit in your gut. Like, oh my God, like not only am I in trouble, but I'm like in as much trouble as I could have possibly gotten. Like, this is all the drugs I could have had on me all at <laughs> once, <laughs> you know, like, and, and like, I'm dead, like, there's no getting out of this. But at the same time, there was almost this sense of relief. Um, you knew you were digging a deeper and deeper hole in some part of you. Yeah. And to be fair, like there were nights where I got really high on drugs and did some stupid stuff where I wasn't, I'm not proud of, you know, a couple, I was never a thief, but a, a, the last month before I got caught, I stole a couple times, uh, broke into a vehicle, just really stuff where I like, you know, I'm glad I got caught when I got caught. I'm really happy with the punishment I got. Like there's problems all along the way, but for the most part, what I got was what I needed. And um, I'm happy that I got caught when I did, not when I have like kids or. What were you sentenced to? So I sat in jail for about four months and then I was sentenced to uh, 10 months. So I was in jail for two months. There's a lot more to this story. Well, I got out on bail and I had nowhere to go live in Georgia. So I went back to Florida. While I was on Florida, I got rearrested for something different and sat in jail on, for two months in Florida. Oh my God. When they, when I was finally done with that, I got shipped back to Georgia because I violated my bail in Georgia. When you get it, you can't get arrested when you're on bail. So I was in jail for two months in Florida, got shipped to Georgia, sat in jail in Georgia for two months. And they sentenced me to a year, but they gave me the two months I was sitting in jail as time served. So I actually went and did 10 months in a detention center in Georgia called Trutland County, Trutland County PDC. It was a work, work camp. So we had to work every day. Uh, and I was there for about 10 months, 14 months total. Sorry. I mean, a lot of people, when they spend time in detention of some sort or another, rather than getting better reforming their lives, turning things around, they get worse. They meet a new set of people that are not on the up and up. They have bad experiences with their supervisors. They develop their resentments to society further. How did you change during that time? I had a unique situation. I think a lot of inmates saw that I was like a young kid that had a really tough go at it. Um, you know, I didn't have visitation. No one ever came and visited me. I didn't get phone calls. I'd get a letter every once in a while, but like, you know, I was in a state I didn't live in, 19 years old, skinniest, whitest person in the, in the facility, you know, like not a threat to anybody. 
Um, so I'm very lucky that I didn't get physically harmed in any way. However, I was this close about a dozen times to not being uh, as lucky. And I, I saw horrible things. Like I saw uh, things that, you know, probably I, I've never gone to a doctor for it, but I've, you know, especially the first couple of years out, like I had a little bit of PTSD, I think from that, like seeing and like having to look over my shoulder all the time. I was in an 85 person dorm room. You mean seeing like violence among other inmates like, mainly? Yeah. Like I, I, I saw a poor guy getting stomped on by like seven, eight people. They were kicking him in the face with their work boots on and like his teeth were all knocked out and like no one helped him. Like, and, uh, it was bad because it wasn't just random. It was gang related. So it was like, there was very rarely like a one-on-one -on -one fight. It was like, if someone gets beat up, there's like nine people beating somebody up. And, uh, it just, uh, you know, I didn't see any rape. Thank God. I didn't see any sexual assaults, but I, uh, I saw a lot of just unfair violence, like just place you don't want to be. And then every once in a while, they just randomly pick you for some reason. Like they not, not, I never got beat up, but they would like intentionally terrorize you just cause they're bored and they like see that you're an easy victim. So like saying that they're going to do stuff to you when you're asleep and like you're in a 85 person open bay dorm room. So like you're literally, they could just walk over and do whatever while you're asleep because there's no protection at all. So it's just not a comfortable place to be uh, in any respect. <laughs> uh, but, you know, where I was at, we had very little opportunity. There was GED and church, and that's it. I got my GED as the first month I was there. After that, I went to church. We had library. Well, every, like, two weeks, they'd let you go to the library, but you had, like, 10 minutes to find a book. And it was really hard to find a book in 10 minutes in a disorganized library. <laughs> but, you know, I just focused on reading and I read a lot of books. Did you find yourself making resolutions about what you would do when you came out? You know, I think I knew I wanted to go to school and I was never going to be this person again. Like I, I knew that from day one, I was like, there's no way I'm ever coming back here. It was horrifying. Uh, it was humiliating. There's no respect from anybody. Um, However, you know, like I had ideas about business, but I never knew in a million years it would come this far. Like I'm so privileged and lucky to be where I am right now. So like, no, this is all a dream come true. Like never really thought that it would come this far. So tell me about the day that they release you. Where I'm at, where we're sentenced, they give people splits. So they'll be like, you're doing 10 to 14 months. So if you get in a fight, they can add a month. If you get caught with drugs, they can add a month up to 14 months. So the day that you're released, they have like a three hour window where they can come and pick you up. And if they're not there, they can add a week. So you got to come back in a week. Like you don't get out that day yet. You get out the next week on that day. So while I was incarcerated towards the end of my sentence, I started connecting with my dad's side of the family in Ohio. His sister basically wrote me and said, Hey, you know, I, I can't believe I should have been there for you when my dad passed. I feel so awful. You're there right now. Let me help. She's like, if there's anything I can do. So we, I ended up agreeing that she would pick me up and I would go back to Ohio. It was the only opportunity I had. So she's driving down from Ohio and she calls them and says, Hey, I'm late. I'm going to be late. And they're like, well, if you're, if you're later than this time, I'm sorry, but you'll have to come back next week. 
and she just drove all the way to Georgia from Ohio. <laughs> so she ended up getting there right in the, but like I'm watching the clock and I know if she's oh not here God. in the next 15 minutes, I have to stay another week and she's going to go back to Ohio. And I can't tell you how much anxiety I had watching that clock for three hours because a week in there is like a, a year in real life. <laughs> it feels like it. But the day I got out, I had this whole list of things I wanted to do immediately. And I think everyone who's ever done more than like a month knows all about this. You're like, I want to see this woman. I want to eat this food. I want to like go to this place. And I had this whole list. And when my aunt, when I finally got out, my, my aunt, and my grandma came and I barely knew either one of them, but they both cried their eyes out and hugged me in the parking lot. And it was so strange for me to know that like, I barely know either one of them. I'm going somewhere. I know nobody. I know no one in Ohio. I've just had this really strange thing happen to me. I'm completely bald because they shave your head. (laughs) (laughs) It was weird. We didn't have a lot to talk about. But the first thing I said was like, hey, can we go? I really want to go to this restaurant. Can we go there? And she said, no, we're not doing any of that. We're going straight to Ohio. So immediately I was like, okay, this is the new normal. I'm at their mercy. Maybe that was the best thing it was. to get you out of those circumstances as it fast was. as possible. Yeah. And I'm going to share one other thing. I'll be quick. Is uh, The second day I was out, I'm living in her basement. She gave me a bicycle and a place to sleep. And she said, I have a, a, a friend that said that they would interview for a dishwashing position. So I want you to go interview. And I said, okay. They gave me a job on the spot. They said, you can start tomorrow. Uh, again, so much privilege that I was able to come home to all these opportunities. Um, however, that night she sat me down and said, here's the list of rules for my house. And she went over (laughs) a 25 rule list, no staying out past dark, no using the internet at all. You're not allowed to have a cell phone because you don't need it. You're not allowed to have, you're not allowed to spend any of the money you make until you move out of my house. So she was like, I'm going to feed you breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I'm providing you everything you need. You're not allowed to spend a penny until you move out. And one time I bought Chipotle because I'd never heard of Chipotle and I really <laughs> wanted to try it. And she found the receipt and she had like a firm talking to with me about how she would kick me out. And it almost broke me because I'd never had anyone discipline that way. But it actually made me. It didn't break me. It made me because, you know, her and her family and my the the way they went about it prepared me to go to college and have the discipline to succeed and start the company. And so I owe them a ton. I bet you do. Tell me about that path through an education that you then had. Yeah. So like I said, I was work, I got a job as a dishwasher, um, seven twenty five an hour. And this company actually got in trouble for it. They were not paying overtime, but they would allow you to work overtime, but they just didn't pay time and a half. And, uh, I took advantage of that. I mean, for a year and a half, I was working 50, 60 hours a week washing dishes and I don't know if you've ever washed dishes, but it is a hard job. I mean, your back hurts because you have to bend over the sink. I mean, like it was awful. So, you know, after about eight months, a year of that, they promoted me to cook. So I was cooking at eight, nine fifty an hour instead of seven twenty-five. like still not good, but working 50, 60 hour weeks. And, you know, I just noticed things about the company that I thought could, there's so much opportunity for improvement. It was like a three location restaurant and the family came from money uh, and they just, weren't interested in making like simple improvements to the business. And it frustrated me because I thought I could do better than these people. Why am I here getting paid crap? I know I'm meant for more than this. So one of the like 15 year old girls that like scooped rice uh, told me, you know, you can go to Columbus state community college. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I, 
I don't even have a diploma. I got my GD in prison. They're not going to let me in there. And she was like, yeah, they will. Yeah, they will. So I just one Friday went and talked to the admissions people, filled out the paperwork. And, you know, three months later, I was starting my first class uh, studying business at a community college. And honestly, it was perfect. Community college was the perfect easing into university because community college, there was other people in my classes that were like, oh, yeah, I, I, I went to prison once when I was, you know, 20. And there's people that are older. There's people with more lived experience. So it was really great. I did well. I got like one B. The rest were A's my two or three semesters. Uh, And then on a whim, I applied to Ohio State University thinking like, wouldn't it be amazing? I've got all this family that went to Ohio State. It was a pipe dream, but I got in. I couldn't believe it. They accepted me. Did you write an essay about uh, this path or did you like, did you conceal it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. No, I didn't conceal it. I, I, from the beginning, I've always led with my story. Um, uh, I mean, not from the very beginning, like when I was washing dishes, but I think once I was in college, I quickly realized, you know, one of my first papers that I wrote was about my experience and my professor gave me a hundred percent A plus and like asked me if I could talk to him after class. And they just like loved it. And they were like, this is so important. There's not enough of this, these stories told. So from then on out, I was pretty uh, upfront about it. So I got really lucky, got into Ohio State. And when I was at Ohio State, I just struggled a little bit more than I did at Columbus State, mostly due to the, the social dynamics. Like everyone's there, there is, you know, really privileged. They're all kids that are like, they, everything's being paid for. You know, I'm in business school. So people are wearing like suits to class. I don't even have a suit. I've never had a suit. So yeah. like, Do you move out of the the ants? Yeah, actually long, like before I even got to community college, I had moved out. So within three months, I had gotten my own car and my own apartment. Uh, so just working 50, 60 hours a week and not having you know, again, the luck that she said, you don't have to pay for anything. Everything's given to you. Just save your money. Uh, so I bought a car on Craigslist for $500. It was one of the best cars I ever had. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, a very cheap apartment at Columbus, Ohio is pretty inexpensive. So, yeah. So what did you study at the university? Yeah, I studied business administration with a spe- uh, focus on operations management. And I chose operations management lar- largely because of my record. I just knew that like finance, accounting, you know, Maybe even marketing would be too like white collar, whereas uh, operations, you're oftentimes supervising manufacturing, warehousing, things like that. So, yeah. Did you ever study anything about the criminal justice system when you were there, or did you stay away from that? No, I didn't. Uh, I did not. However, I was going into jails and prisons in Ohio, speaking, uh, volunteering with a couple other nonprofits that were related to jails and prisons. Wait, how did you start doing that? One doesn't just randomly start doing that. You get pulled into that somehow. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I know there's a nonprofit here in Columbus, Ohio, uh, ran by two former NFL players, um, I, one of which runs a program for my aunt, Science Robotics. And he te- he comes into her class every year and talks to the students because they're kind of in like a lower income area. And she just like said, here's a, you know, I want you to meet my nephew. And she told him my story and he was like, I'd love to meet him. And, uh, you know, he's not like a big name NFL player. Uh, his name was Roy Hall. Uh, but, uh, he played with Peyton Manning, Indianapolis for like one year and, um, great guy. He just said like, Hey, Arlie, I love your story. We're actually putting together some programming in one of the prisons here in Ohio. We'd love to have you come. So I went with him four or five times, but also I was working on my business during college. So like at Ohio state, I had started dabbling on some business ideas and they were all always related to helping this population. So 
There was another community-based correctional facility that I started going to. I've never been afraid of just showing up and asking questions. So I think that was part of it. And now I'm actually on the advisory board for the Ohio Department of Corrections. And I'm doing a little bit of work here in Colorado too, uh, with some some people in the Department of Corrections as well. It's mostly just like me emailing people or showing up and asking questions and then sharing my story and seeing how I can help. What is the business? What was the idea and how has it come to fruition at this point? Yeah. So at first it was, I wrote my book. So my senior year, I wrote this book about how to find a job and build a career with a criminal record um, based on just like trial and error. Like I had been, I tried so many things and this is what I seemed to work and this is what didn't. In my book, I, you know, I call out, look, I'm a white male. I have a lot of privilege. Not all of this is going to be applicable to everyone who reads it. However, it will help you. Like, I don't think there's anyone with a felony that's going to read my book and say that didn't help me one bit. I think there's helpful stuff in there. So based on that book, it started selling a lot. Like I've sold 6,000 copies as a self-published book. I think that's really good from what I've read. That's like really good. It's very unusual, I think, to self-publish and get thousands of copies out for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So that made me think maybe there's more people really need to figure out how to find a job and build a career. So I looked into what's called LMS, Learning Management Systems. Basically, I had a YouTube channel. My YouTube channel was getting thousands of views. So I said, why don't I create formalized video content with like workbooks, teach people how to interview, how to explain their criminal record, how to build credit, how to get into college, how to do all these things that I had to figure out on my own. So I did that. I put them all online. It took me like six months while I was working my job after college. And I had like 20 people paying me $8 a month to have access to this like <laughs> ecosystem of learning content. And I'm yeah. like, all right, I'm making, you know, a hundred bucks a month or whatever. Yeah. So I started uh, really taking it serious. Like how, how can I build a business that will give me the freedom to do this full time? Like I just want to help. There's 20 million Americans with felonies. Most of them aren't as privileged as I am. There's got to be a way I can use my passion and my you know brain to solve this problem. Turns out I went through some business accelerator programs, which some of them are like free. And then some of them take equity from you and they provide cash and other things. The first two I went through were both free. It was just for learning. So, and I learned a ton. And the second one, I surveyed all my customers. And basically what I found was their number one thing they wanted was connection to a job. They're like, I just need a job as soon as possible. So I went to some people I knew in Columbus. Luckily, I, I knew one HR manager at a manufacturing company who said, we'll hire people right out of prison through you and we'll give you $500 per person. And I said, all right, now, we, now, now we're talking money. I, <laughs> I'm making 100 bucks a month with the side business and it's super hard to get people to join. I can find people who will come work. So I, I, I made like $1,000 doing this and then I got really lucky. I met a guy at a bar whose son had been arrested for the same charges as me, but got one year of probation. And it's because he was a director at Marilyn Lynch in Boston. And he said, I like what you're doing. I can tell you're a smart kid. Here's $100,000. Wow. Go bring it to life. And, uh, you know, I always told him I had the vision for turning it into a platform like Indeed.com or LinkedIn, where we could really help everyone at scale. And that's what it's turning into. We have over 400 companies uh, including Amazon, Coke Industries, Aero Electronics, um, uh, several other Fortune 500 companies. And we've helped like 12,000 formerly incarcerated people. So uh, it's really starting to scale. When one starts an enterprise like that, there's a big decision. I don't know that if it was a decision for you, sounds like not, but whether to start it kind of as a nonprofit or a for-profit. And very consequential decision. And here you are with a background in learning about business 
did you ever consider a different model or why, why did you go for the for-profit model? Yeah. So in college, I uh, had taken a course on social enterprise. And basically what social enterprise, it's evolving over the years. Now it's both nonprofit, for-profit. But the narrative I heard and absorbed the most was the idea that you can use capitalistic business models and approaches. If you can create a product or service that customers actually will pay for, there's no need to ask people for free money, right? So there are plenty of of needs in the world where a nonprofit is the necessary approach. One, because you can't make money off of it, or two, because it may just be unethical to make money off of it, right? I think this is one where we are putting the burden of revenue on the employers. And the truth is we're providing a solution to their pain point, especially right now more than ever. I mean, companies are looking for talent. They're having a hard time finding it. And they're also looking for diverse talent. I'm assuming you know this, but it is disproportionately people of color. Uh, There's not a whole lot of research on it, but uh, one cited study that's been cited a lot says that one in 17 white men will go to prison. One in six Latinx men will go to prison one in three black men will go to prison. So it's becoming a more and more important conversation with companies who have vouched all this money and resources into diversity, equity, inclusion. And then they're like, oh, we didn't realize that that means we're going to have to change our background check policies and be more thoughtful in our, in our screening process. So uh, it's it's been a benefit to us. Really, the reason why I went with for-profit was because I was a full-time employee and I'm trying to figure out how to uh, create demand for my service more than I am. Uh, I, I didn't really have the time to create a board and find all these people. It was more of just like a, a project that I did in my free time trying to figure out, will people pay me? I've always been a doer. And then I figure out how to formalize it after it's done, which is, you know, at some point I'll have to stop doing that. But um, that's why for-profit made sense for me is just because I, I was able to do it quickly and, and iterate there's a lot of people who have made money in the business of kind of finding talent and finding someone who wanted to hire that talent, the headhunters of the world, the LinkedIn's, you know, platforms. There's a lot of business in that. I hate it when I have to use it for, for, to employ someone. Sometimes they'll charge me a quarter of someone's salary for a year just to find like a programmer or something. It seems to me that you have a very different market than a lot of those people are aiming at that people are aiming at big salespeople or high tech workers or whatever you are aiming at a lower skilled with lower wages. Um, and you're also adding in that wrinkle of has a criminal record, which, you know, is going to make some employers a little scared and it may also add liability on your end. Like, did you provide me somebody who then stole from me or did something wrong? Tell me about that aspect of how this is different than another enterprise of finding talent. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of great things to talk about here. So I'll try not to go too long. Um, First off, you know, there's a long education process. Sometimes. So we talk to employers. Sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, we already hire people with records. We work with the work release program here in town. You know, we hire people on parole. We get the early adopters. So uh, as our brand continues to grow, we have lots of inbound. So we have lots of companies come to us and say, hey, we heard about you. We get on one or two phone calls and then they join and they start hiring people. 
it's usually when we are trying to proactively get a company to come to us. So right now we're working with a very large retail brand uh, that everyone would know. It's a clothing brand that's very popular. Um, we are negotiating the contract now. They are new to it, but they said their executive team decided earlier this year that they were going to do it. So they've already allocated resources to it. And now they're just trying to figure out who to work with. And then we have sometimes where we cold call a company. They're like, ah, eh, we've never done this before. But honestly, we're open to learning because we're having such a hard time. So it, it depends, right? There's more and more of the first and second example where they're fairly educated. They've been given the green light. We always educate them on uh, the federal bonding. Uh, the, the federal government offers $5,000 in bonding for the first six months. So if they steal something, to your point, you can report that, and the federal government will give you up to $5,000. I am also hoping to convince some senators to pass a bill that says we should increase that because we know that very few people are collecting on that. The incentive is not strong enough for employers to actually take action based on that. If it was $50,000 for a year, I still think it would be a, a fairly economical program that would incentivize a lot more employers to participate. Sorry, so I just want to put that on there in case anyone hears that. Um, what makes us more di different in the sense that everyone is aware that there's a lot of people with criminal histories. I mean, they HR people have people weeded out all the time because of, of the background check. They also, most of them know, but it's somewhere way in the back of their head that there is a process for determining if, if you should say yes or no. It's way back here somewhere in their HR education. They learned about how to fairly and justly evaluate a candidate that fills the background check. There's the EEOC guidelines. There's you know, just general HR best practices that HR people are taught when it comes to this. There's state and federal laws. And you can imagine, they don't have a whole lot of time. They're trying to get someone in the door. They've got 20 applications. Oh, we were going to hire this guy, but you know what? Let's just hire that other person because we can say yes right now and they can start tomorrow. So there's this really inefficient and costly process associated with this population. What our platform does, we have technology called Conflicts AI, and we're an early stage company. It's not actually AI at this point. It's natural language processing. We're just reading the job descriptions, looking at the job location address, and we can determine what those considerations are without the HR person ever even knowing the job candidate. So we can say, this person has this record, they, they're considering this job, and we actually can show the job seeker how likely they are to get through the background check before they even apply. We rank our jobs in order of how likely you are to get through the background check process. So what that results in is people get hired way faster and at higher wages. So average person with a felony, it takes about eight months for them to find a job where they make seven grand a year. $7,000 a year. With us, our average is 33 days from creating an account to starting your first day on the job. And the average pay is 39 grand a year. So our algorithm is helping people find the right job to apply for. So we backfill with jobs from Indeed. So we have millions of jobs, but we also have about 300,000 jobs that are posted directly with us. And that's the value that employers love is when we get an application from Honest Jobs, yes, they have a record, but we already know we have mitigated all the liability. Like Honest Jobs has considered all that pertinent data. We still encourage our people to do a background check for their own internal processes, but this is beneficial for both the job seeker and the employer. And this is really what's helped us wedge ourselves into the market. Are there people with records so severe that you don't count them among your potential clients? Like 
I don't know, murderers and rapists? Or how do you think about that? The quick answer is no, uh, we don't. Because if they're in society, we're all better off if they have a job. Our employees don't even know their criminal histories. Our tech knows their criminal histories, but we don't. So like I can look at it, like I can look in our database and I have, you know, my CTO and I will do reviews to try and get some data analytics. Like the other day we saw that we had about 20 people with murder charges, but that's 20 people out of 8,000 active users right now. So, I mean, it's not that many. You'd be surprised though. I didn't know this, but sex-related crimes, there's actually quite a lot of people with sex-related crimes and the significant portion of them, more than half, I'd say, they watch something on the internet. So this is a really large uh, population. And interestingly enough, that population tends to be highly educated. So we have lots of like senior software developers, IT professionals, people with MBAs who looked at some type of pornography that got them in trouble. And uh, so there's really interesting data in there. And what I can say is there's a lot of people, like you said, that are in state prisons. They're blue collar workers. On average, it is a lower skill set. But when you look at the federal prison system, I mean, the IQ is really high in the federal prison system. They're very talented people. Oftentimes, they got themselves in trouble because they're too smart, you know, and maybe they learn their lessons. So we've placed software developers. We've placed sales executives. Most of the time, though, we're placing manufacturing, warehousing, forklift drivers, uh, skilled trades, sales sometimes. How's the business doing? Yeah, so... Uh, <laughs> I started about two and a half years ago. We started going up slowly. As a first-time founder, I just had so much learning for about a year. I was just trying to figure stuff out. Pandemic hit. We lost everything. Uh, we went basically down to zero for a couple months there. We got into Techstars. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Techstars. It's a business accelerator. We were re-inspired, but we also changed several parts of our business. And we had some really great mentors. Um, during the Techstars cohort right at the end of last year, I also raised $1.3 million dollars and hired some key people. So now, some of those changes we made during the program, it took us about four months to like see the results just because there was a lot of new new ground to cover. We went from six grand to nine grand to uh, 18,000 to 30,000. Is this monthly revenue? Monthly revenue. And now this month, we're planning to hit 60 or 70,000 this month. And next month, we'll do well over, well over 100 grand. Uh, per month. So as you know, it's kind of a big milestone when you kind of break the 1 million ARR. That's kind of when like venture capitalists are saying, okay, maybe this thing has some legs. We have a clear path to breaking, you know, 2 million ARR by the end of the year. So pretty exciting. What changes did you make? One thing we did was we knew we were having a hard time collecting a lot of the important data. So placement retention rates, pay rates, how long do they stay, all that stuff that every investor wants to know and companies want to know it as well. Uh, so what we did was we started, started a direct placement program. So we have seven companies that have committed to paying a 15% markup on annual salary. So it's still lower than, like you said, 20, 25% is the normal. And I've paid that too. It's horrible. It's the worst thing ever to have to pay that. Um, so we're getting anywhere from 33500 up to like $8,000 per hire now. And we've got several companies, including two Fortune 500 companies who have been hiring people through us that way all across the US. It took us a while from starting their program to actually getting people hired just because they're big companies, their internal processes are crazy. But we are now you know, at a point where we're getting, I don't know, every month it's like doubling the amount of people hired. And that is contributing a lot to our top line revenue. 
but it's also giving us the bandwidth to scale up how we can serve people kind of more on that automated job board fashion as well. The other thing is, is we have a white label. We have, we can white label our platform for states. So we're doing this for Colorado. We're talking about doing this in Massachusetts. And then with a, with a state white label, the state promotes it via DOC probation and parole. And then whenever thousands of people are using that white label, we can give them back very interesting data that they don't have. So we can give the state skills, like let's say 5,000 people in, Boston, uh, in, in Massachusetts are using our platform. We can tell the state, here's their average education. Here's their average time since release. Here's the jobs they've applied for. Here's the pay rate. Here's how long it's taking. We can give them all this really interesting data to the universities, to the policymakers, to the Department of Corrections. We're going to be monetizing that as well. Of course, we'll scrub that data so there's no like personal information being shared. It's more just like high-level data, but that is also going to generate quite a bit of revenue. A couple other people who I've talked to who have built platforms for helping people in different ways, like with bankruptcy or things like that, have referenced something called access to justice as the category that they work in. Have you run across that? No, but I have, you know, last year there was a firm that did this big thing called uh, promoting justice tech. So, you know, there's FinTech and InsureTech and all this stuff. It's an enormous problem, I can tell you. $77 billion a year is lost in annual income by people impacted by the justice system. And that's good research done by the Brennan Center at New York University, University of New York. Uh, $77 billion a year in annual lost earnings because of a record. So if we can even capture a sliver of that, we're talking about an enormous company with a profound impact on the economic mobility of people who need it the most. We know that these are disproportionately people of color. These are disproportionately people who are in generational poverty. These are people who need it more than anybody. And this is a clear way to break down a system that pretty much is bipartisan right now that people know that this is a problem. So from the HR perspective, it's the right time. Politically, it's the right time. You know, um, from their diversity, right now is obviously the right time to... If you're ever going to include people, right now is the time to do it. So it is an enormous opportunity if we could solve it. And it's one of those things where like an investor who has the money to put a dent in this could leave a legacy. You know what I'm saying? There's a, there's few opportunities to make a billion dollars and leave an enormous legacy that's actually important. You know, anyone can talk about how Airbnb and Uber changed the world for better or whatever, you know, but this actually would, you know. Whenever you have a good idea... Other people have a different version of it. What does the competition for what you're doing look like? So there's not a lot. There's one, uh, a gentleman who raised uh, $1.2 million at a Y Combinator four or five years ago. Uh, he started a company called 70 Million Jobs. I'll say it. I don't care. Um, I don't really see them as a threat. In fact, he started another company earlier this year and is raising money for that. So I think he's pivoting away from it. He never, I don't think he ever really had any uh, intellectual property or like unique advantage. It was just a job board. And he was like, we're a brand that connects you to this population. We actually have a unique process and we use mass data to make smart decisions and smart matches. So uh, we also have an amazing brand. We're very intentional about the language we use. Uh, so we're not gimmicky in any way. We don't use like gimmicks from jail and prison culture in our branding. Um, and then there are several smaller, either nonprofit or very social mission driven kind of local. Uh, so there's one in Wisconsin that's gotten some attention called the way out. They're an app, but they're very hyper local focused there. And I believe Milwaukee, 
Someone in Chicago is doing something very similar uh, called RiseKit. Not exactly like us. We don't really have any direct competition. Our main competition is temp services. People with records, they go to a temp service where they get paid very little money. They're chewed up and spit out. There's no upward mobility. And it's a cycle that keeps them in poverty and eventually sends them back to jail. Or government assistance. You know, those are our competitors. And that's why it's so important that we win. It's very unusual to find yourself working on a project that really fits you. I think it's an enviable place to be for anybody, regardless of the hurdles you had to overcome. Why is this a good fit for you? I think it's a good fit for me because I recognize I recognize that I've had a super hard road, but there's so many people that have had it way harder than me. So I, I come humbled for the opportunity. I'm grateful and thankful. And I'm intentionally going to continue to lift up people uh, who don't look like me, right? So our company is very diverse. We're 11 people in the company right now. Eight of us have felonies. 40 plus percent women, 40 plus percent people of color. Uh, Very proud of the fact that when I think about hiring the next 35, 40 people, we are being very intentional to make sure that they're people touched by the system, that they're people uh, who have the power to make sure that this represents the people impacted by it. So that's part of it. Obviously, you know, I have my personal connection and struggle. Every single day I wake up motivated intrinsically by something inside me, by what I've lived through, not because I'm going to make a million billion dollars. I love the idea of making billion dollars. I talk about it probably more than I should when I'm running a social mission company. I talk about, you know, right now I'm fundraising. I'm trying to f- close this this round. We're trying to close a six million dollar round right now. And I'm very you know, all about that. But at the end of the day, like, um, I've had my employees cry to me about how thankful they are to be doing this work. My employees, multiple of my employees have cried on the job after having a job seeker on the phone with them telling them, you've changed my life. I can't tell you how thankful I am. So there's just something very special about the opportunity to have dozens of people who have had pain and struggle help other people solve that pain and struggle. And I know there's other companies who have had this privilege of being in that space, but like you said, it's not that common. So we're very thankful. So if you're talking to a potential funder, what do you say to them? Like, why should they put their money into this particular enterprise? What's the pitch? I didn't expect to get the pitch question, but yeah. So I have a pitch deck. I usually share that with them. And there's a lot that goes into it, like our continuous growth. You know, we're growing over 50% month over month. So free market, like things should be efficient. There's a gap in the market right now where companies, the most, the thing companies spend the most money on is their people. And right now they're spending more than ever to try and fill these positions. We've also got 19 million Americans who are dramatically under or unemployed and they're not disabled. They're employable. They're trainable, right? We also know that How are we going to continue to compete as a company? If you look at the macroeconomics of this as a country, globally, we have to optimize our talent that we have here to continue to compete on a global scale when, you know, we're having less babies than ever. So like from an economics perspective, this makes sense. It's sound business. All the research out there shows that these people stay longer. They're promoted quicker often. And there's really no research showing that there's an increased liability for hiring them. 
So I also tell them about the Second Chance Business Coalition. Jamie Dimon from J.P. Morgan Chase started it earlier this year. There's 35 Fortune 500 companies who have publicly stated that they are going to start hiring people with criminal records who have been to prison. So there's a lot of validation out there. Politically, I bring up Trump passed the prison reform. Obviously, Democrats have passed a lot of uh, important legislation around this. There hasn't been a better time to address a massive market opportunity. And like I said, this is $77 billion a year in lost earnings. If we can capture a sliver of that and put it back in their hands, we believe our market opportunity is about $4 billion a year in, in revenue if, if we capture our, our whole market opportunity. So that's a big that's a big number, I know. <laughs> You're not shooting at a tiny thing. What makes you the right guy to run an enterprise that really is able to take advantage of this opportunity? I'm coachable. I'm coachable and I'm inspiring and I don't quit and I'm a team player. So like I, I have no problem giving responsibility to people who I know are aligned and, and the, their head's in the right place. So I, I am 100% someone who wants people in the boat who want to help me row the boat. I am not egotistical. I don't claim to know it all. All the time I praise my leaders, my ops manager, my CTO, my senior recruiter on how much they carry this company. So I am one that believes I can take us to the moon, but if at some point we believe there's someone better to take us to the moon, I'll be VP of growth or I'll be chief advocacy officer. I want to see this thing come to life. So you don't have to worry about me ruining it because I was a power struggle or something. What are you looking for in terms of uh, an investment? What's the smallest investment you would take? What are the sort of the people that you already have on board? My angel investor gave me the first 100K way back in the day. He's just a guy from Boston. He's done a lot of good investments, but he makes small small investments. Then we have Techstars who put in 120 grand total. Um, during Techstars, I met a gentleman named Dan Caruso. who's the founder and CEO of Zeo Group, which is a $14 billion company. He ran that company for 20 years. He's now started a fund. So he uh, invested half a million. And then Matchstick Ventures, uh, a gentleman named Natty Zola, great guy, led our uh, pre-seed round of $1.3 million. Um, and then Stanford Graduate Business School invested fifty grand two or three months ago, which is really cool and excited to have them. We get like free MBA students every year to help with projects and things. And then now... Um, I don't know if I should say it on a podcast, but I have four other people that are soft commitments to our current round. So I have about $4 million in soft commitments right now. And we're looking for two to three more million but to hopefully set the terms of the round. And so what if someone put in X dollars, what do they get in terms of a Equity. share of the company? Yeah. Well, that's what the price, that's why we need someone to set the prices. It's yeah. going to determine. They have what, to are you, say what are you aiming at, basically? Uh, so after getting the at six million. valuation, yeah. Yeah, after getting the six million, mm -hmm. we'd like to see ourselves right at about thirty million dollar valuation for a tech SaaS company. I think that's uh, for like a marketplace SaaS company based on our revenue. I think that's uh, market pretty close to market. So we see a lot of seed stage companies getting like twenty twenty five million dollar valuations when they have some traction. Uh, we have you know we have several. We're almost to ten Fortune five hundred companies that we know we're going to be able to scale up with. So like. There's not a whole lot of risk at that valuation. It's got to feel pretty exciting to have people who believe enough in you to invest like that and to have some opportunity to change the world. So really an honor to talk to you. Is there a question I didn't ask that you'd like to answer? 
maybe uh, how can job seekers and employers join? <laughs> maybe that, that would maybe be the only question. So how can job seekers and employers join? Thank you. Yeah. So uh, first thing I want to clarify is our URL. So if you want to go to our website, it is honestjobs.co. So it's honestjobs.co. It is free for job seekers anywhere in the U.S. You can create a job seeker account for free and we will help you find a job, a better better job faster. And then uh, for employers, we also have a free option. So it's free for employers. About 10% of our employers opt into a paid plan. So we do have paid plans for people who want to do more with us. Um, and we even have that direct placement option that I mentioned that we'll do with some companies. It has to be a good fit for the program where it's at today, but we can help Fortune 100 companies. We can help a single location pizza shop. Uh, so we'd love to help any of you. And then I guess my last call would be is, I don't know how many politicians uh, are listening, but if anybody is interested in criminal justice reform legislation and they would like someone to bounce ideas off of, I'm very interested. I might run one day. Who knows? I don't know if a felon can make it into office, but I'd love to take that challenge on one day. And uh, maybe you could help me out there a little bit. I know you've got a little bit of experience in this. So if anybody wants to talk to me about criminal justice reform or, or wants like an informal advisor or somebody to work with, especially on business related stuff, I'm here. Well, very fun to talk to you. I wish you the best of luck on this enterprise. I think it has a real potential to serve a lot of people in a good way and, and help some companies along also. So uh, anything else you want to say? Uh, no, thank you for the opportunity. I hope everyone uh, takes out of this that people can change and that, you know, one of the problems in America is just that we got to get back to knowing that when someone's incarcerated, that is their punishment. They should be able to come home and be an American citizen again and have the same opportunities they had before they went. That's our mission more than anything is we want to just help make that a reality. Hopefully everyone takes away from this that people can change like I did and our, and our eight employees that have personal experience with it. They're all growing this company. It's their talent and contribution that's made this a reality. So uh, that's all. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you too. That was Harley Blakeman. Harley is at honestjobs.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.